Our reading this morning is from Matthew 10, verses 5 through 20 from the Common English Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus sent these 12 out and commanded them, don't go among the Gentiles or into a Samaritan city. Go instead to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. As you go, make this announcement. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with skin diseases, and throw out demons. You received without having to pay. Therefore, give without demanding payment. Workers deserve to be fed, so don't gather gold or silver or copper coins for your money belts to take on your trips. Don't take a backpack for the road or two shirts or sandals or a walking stick. Whatever city or village you go into, find somebody in it who is worthy and stay there until you go on your way. When you go into a house, say peace. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if the house isn't worthy, take back your blessing. If anyone refuses to welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet as you leave that house or city. I assure you that it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on Judgment Day than it will be for that city. Look, I'm sending you as a sheep among wolves. Therefore, be wise as snakes and innocent as doves. Watch out for people, because they will hand you over to councils and they will beat you in their synagogues. They will haul you in front of governors and even kings because of me, so that you may give your testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Whenever they hand you over, don't worry about how to speak or what you will say, because what you can say will be given to you at that moment. You aren't doing the talking, but the spirit of my Father is doing the talking through you. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, please be seated now, right? I, I want to uh, just clarify some, a couple things as we do think about next week. Um, so what time are our services next week? And 10.30, all right, good. You got it, good. Uh, the other thing is, I want to clarify, I said something about summer, so I didn't want you to think we were just going to do this for four months and then forget it. So what we'll probably be doing is by May, we'll be evaluating both services and we'll be looking at things, and we may go back to one service during the summer and then go back to two services in the fall, which is something the church has done in the past, just because we know summertime is a bit of vacation time uh, from church for some people. You know, I'm just kidding, but you know what I'm talking about. So just be aware, that's it. We're not giving up or quitting or anything like that. We're just anticipating that might be a scenario we'll be looking at. But we'll let you know in May uh, what we're going to do for the summer, whether we'll stay with the two all summer or whether we'll combine back to one for the summer. Um, the other th uh, thing, uh, let me just go to the sermon. So how many, imagine yourself riding a bike and you catch the edge of the road right? You're riding a bike. If you, ever, if you ever rode on the side of a road, you know that there's like gravel or a shoulder. And if you catch, your wheel catches the edge of the road just right, you're, you actually flip over. You actually fall, right? And if you've ever seen this happen, this is not me, by the way. Uh, could be me, but it's not me. And so this person has gone over. Now, 
I want you to think about the response. When you fall over and you fall down, if your first response is to look around to see if anybody saw what happened, <laughs> there's something going on inside of you, right? So in this particular scenario, think about the biker who falls off and he looks around, and he looks around and he looks and sees if the driver has seen him, but the driver doesn't make eye contact. The driver acts like nothing happened and they keep driving away and they act like nothing's happened. Biker gets back on his bike, starts riding away like nothing happened. Only later, another half mile down the road, does the biker stop to see if the bike is damaged or to check his bruises and bumps. What's going on inside the biker at that moment? Shame. Shame. You see, when you're in a shame-based culture, when you're in an environment where shame is the driver, you're going to be more worried about what other people think of you than if what actually is happening to you physically, right? So you might have physical pain, but the, the pain of embarrassment, the pain of shame, will actually overcome the physical pain that you're enduring. Uh, Dr. Brené Brown, who seems to be the guru of shame today, she defines it this way. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. So think about that. There's pain, but in the biker scenario, in the you think about this, the pain, the physical pain was overcome and ignored because of the emotional pain of shame. Shame took over in that environment. Now, why, why are we talking about this? Well, <clears throat> I read an article recently uh, by Sarah Billups. And do you know when uh, Dr. Brenny Brown looks into the shame and the things that create shame or the categories of shame in our lives, she lists things like body image, uh, economic status, right, can be a shame, place of shame. Uh, she also lists religion as a place that we can feel shame as well. And so then I turn, I would mention this article by Sarah Billups. She, uh, she's a young woman who has lived here in the Pacific Northwest for 15 years. And Sarah uh, was, had read an article and she explains this in her her article about living in the Northwest and, and how she would, when people would find out that she was a Christian, they would, they would ghost her. You know, they would just start ghosting her and just not even uh, acknowledging her anymore after they discovered that about her. So she learned very quickly to hide that part of herself from other people. And she said, for 15 years, I, I hid this idea, this concept that I was a Christian. I hid my Christian identity from my friends and the people around me and she, she said that I was doing this, and the problem with doing this is that uh, there was a cost to that. One cost was that when I did this, when I finally, fi people finally found out I was a Christian, they felt like I'd been dishonest with them because I hadn't shared that with them about who I was. And the other thing was it took a lot of energy out of me to manage the image, to manage that. And so what I would say to you is that what Sarah was experiencing also was shame, she actually acknowledged it in her article. She said, this is out of her article. She says, the shame I'd attached to the gospel. You hear that? She admits, the shame I'd attached to the gospel slowly God revealed the paradox I had created. The thing I most value, life with God, was the thing, to, the thing I'd hidden for fear of judgment, fear of shame, right? So think about that. Sarah had learned to attach shame to the gospel. And that created this hidden identity within her. And she said this actually was for 15 years. And then she decided, I'm not going to do this anymore. 
I'm going to start being honest about who I am with other people. You know what she experienced then? People still ghosted her. But she also found other people who started to ask her questions and who would engage in conversation with her, people who were open to her faith and learning more about her faith. And as she became more authentic about who she was and about her identity as a Christian, the shame went away, and she'd be able to, she began to actually have some pretty good conversations and healthy relationships with others, dis, despite that she was a Christian at times, right? So I think about this, you know, as we get into the passage today, think about this, that Jesus is sending the disciples actually into a shame-based culture. But notice that Jesus says this. Notice how Jesus starts out. He says, he says, he says I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. He's not talking about just shame. He's talking about outright hostility. He's talking about this idea that not only was he concerned about whether they'd feel ashamed or rejected or not, but he was actually concerned whether or not they'd be beaten in the synagogues. He's sending them out into a hostile, threatening environment. I mean, think about tomorrow's uh, Martin Luther, we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. When the, peop the people who stood up the civil rights movement, they were going into a hostile environment. They were beaten. They were, they were, there was hostility there, not just shame, right? But they were honest and clear about who they were despite that hostility. I think about uh, today in the news, the Iranian Christians that are standing up for what they believe and getting hostility in return. So notice that Jesus is teaching the disciples to go not just, into, not just to face their shame, but actually face their fear and face hostility. And so it's in this context that Jesus is sending them. And I think a little bit of comfort, I get a little bit of comfort from Jesus' words later on in the passage. We didn't read this, but he goes on and he says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. What I, what, it doesn't sound good, does it? Like I don't, nobody want, anybody here want to be hated? I don't want to be hated, Right? But what gives me a little affirmation here, what gives me a little bit of hope here is that people aren't just rejecting Matt or you or me, right? They're rejecting who Jesus is in our lives. And so it's not about me. Uh, if you've ever heard that phrase before, it's not about me. It's about the one I follow as well. It's about a rejection of Jesus. And Jesus is talking about this in this hostile environment to his disciples who he's sending into this hostile environment. Remember, it's not just about you, it's about rejection of the Son of God. Something bigger at work here than just what's happening with you. So I thought we'd unpack this because I think Jesus gives us some great instructions on how to be a disciple and how to share our faith or to, how to be, as we've been talking about, the art of neighboring in a hostile environment. I don't think we're in, in anywhere near what the Iranian Christians are going through or the other 144 other countries that are experiencing that kind of hostility today across the world. I don't think we're in that context, but I do know that our environment right now has become more hostile to the gospel and hostile to Christianity than in, year, in decades past. Part of, that's, part of that is due to what's called the new atheism that is going on in our culture, and the new atheism has actually become more hostile. Before they were 
who are more just like, hey, here's our stance and we're atheists and here's why we believe what we believe. But now there are people in the new atheist movement that are actually trying to get rid of religion from all society, all religion from society, because they think it's bad for society. And so they actually become more hostile to that. And I think that's seeing its way into our society as well. So how do you do that? I think Jesus' instructions here are great for us. Because if you think about, that's the environment the disciples are going into. That's kind of, we're not there yet. You know, maybe one day we will be, I hope not, but it could happen. And so Jesus says to them, here's some instructions. He says, so when you go into a town or city, start, and if you look at verse 11, he says, when you go in there, and I'm going to paraphrase this just because, make it more memorable, right? Make, make, make it easier to remember. So Jesus says, what's the first thing a disciple is supposed to do when they arrive in a town or city? Basically, ask questions. That's the first thing they're supposed to do. So they enter into a town. They would go and they start talking to people. They start asking questions. And part of that question is to find someone who would offer hospitality to them. Because in Middle Eastern culture, to stay in someone's house was also meant that you would protect them, right? So the disciples are going into a hostile environment. So they go into a city or town. They don't know what the mood of that town is, what kind of hostility they're going to face. So Jesus says to them, the first thing you ought to do is go ask some questions. Notice he doesn't say, go in with the four spiritual laws. Or go in with, the, with just leading and, and carry a cross into the town and start preaching in the town square. He doesn't say that, right? He doesn't say, get on a bullhorn and go stand in the crowd and start telling people they're going to hell. He says, go in and start asking questions. <laughs> Find out what the mood of the city is. Find out what's going on in the town. And look for people that will offer a space for you. Because there were no hotels back then. You didn't, like, make a reservation. We know that from Mary and Joseph. So you don't go in there, but you ask questions. You find out who's open, who's hospitable, who will receive, not only receive you and that you can stay in their home, but who also will protect you. <laughs> so ask questions. I think that's a great thing to do. When we're thinking about sharing our faith, when we're thinking about the art of neighboring and talking to other people, I think the first step we ought to be taking with people is just ask questions, get to know them, find out more about them, be, engage in relationship with them without an agenda right? Then the next thing Jesus says, if you go to verse 12, he says, and this is, again, my paraphrase, he says, greet them with God's peace. Offer them God's peace. So go in, find out who's open, hospitable, and then when you go to their home, greet them with God's peace. Now, the word peace here is not just meaning the end of hostilities. It actually means the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness, blessing, right? Life abundantly, right? It, it's, it's meaning wishing and hoping the best for that person or that family or that household. It's saying, I'm hoping God's wholeness and God's peace for you and your household. So you go in and you offer this hope and this peace and this wholeness to people in Christ, in the kingdom, in the gospel. So that's the first thing you lead with. <laughs> Notice that that's what Jesus says, to go in and do that. Now, I, want to do, I do want to mention something about motives. Because those of us who've been in the church a long time um, uh, sometimes get our motives a little bit uh, backwards. And it's not a bad thing. Sometimes it's well-intentioned. I think often it's well-intentioned. But, you know, there's a, there's a time when I think that sometimes we can come across like a salesperson, right? 
Like, I'm selling something to you, and if you don't buy it, then I'm, I, I'm not going to be in relationship with you anymore, right? I mean, people are selling everything today. I mean, check out this ad for bacon. I love, change your life with bacon. <laughs> I came across that, and I thought to myself, everybody's selling this message that bacon will change your life. It will change your life. You'll get high cholesterol and high blood pressure and no, I love bacon. If you, I'm, not, I'm not a hater on bacon, sorry. But what I'm saying is that anybody can sell you anything and claim that it will change your life. So there's a difference. I love the way that Jay Pathak in the book, The Art of Neighboring, puts it. He puts it this way. He says the difference between an ulterior motive and an ultimate. He says the ulterior motive in good neighboring must never be to share the gospel. But the ultimate motive is just that, to share the story of Jesus and the impact on our lives, right? So what I love about what he says there is there's a difference between an ulterior motive and an ultimate motive, right? An ulterior motive has conditions. It has strings attached. It has an immediate agenda, right? But an ultimate motive is that that people will experience the wholeness and hope that comes from Jesus Christ when we offer it to them, right? Here's the thing. If it's an ultimate motive, that means I don't I will stay in relationship with people even if they reject or do not accept the gospel, right? And we'll talk a little bit about more what Jesus said about that, but ultimately, that if as long as a person is open and receptive to being in relationship with us as Christians and knowing about our faith, that that's okay, right? We stay in relationship. We don't, we don't check, them off the, check them off of our relational radar just because they're not a Christian, and I could, we could go in more into why we sometimes do that. But again, we're not there to shame them either. We're there to be in relationship with people. We're there to offer hope and blessing and peace to people. And if they're willing to be a part of our lives, we continue to be in relationship with them. We continue to walk with them. Paul called it long-suffering, to suffer long with someone, right? And sometimes people just need to be loved unconditionally for a long time, before they'll ever really see what is driving us, what's motivating us, and it's not an ulterior motive. It's the ultimate hope that we have for every person to connect with Jesus, right? It's an ultimate motive, not an ulterior motive. Next, notice in verse 13, what does Jesus say? Again, paraphrased. He says, if they're receptive, stay. Stay in relationship with them. Stay in their house. Get to know them. Continue to be a part of their lives and, and be willing to stay with them and be in relationship with them. Don't give up on them. I think about Paul's advice to married couples later on in the New Testament. When a, when a spouse is married to another spouse who's an unbeliever, what did Paul say that for that spouse to do, that spouse that's married to an unbeliever? What, what did Paul say? Stay. Stay in relationship. Stay married, right? Stay there. Because if they want to, if that's, that's part of that, right? And that's part of what Paul's saying. That's what Jesus is saying as well, that we stay in relationship with people whether or not they get it. Because God's love calls us to do that, to be in relationship with people and to do that relationally. Now, verse 14 says this. If they're not receptive, go. Go. So if they're hostile... If they don't want to be in relationship, if they are not open to 
your blessing of peace and your offer of peace, shake the dust off your sandals and go to another town. Go to another place. I think this also applies to us in relationships today because, you know, if people aren't receptive to us, if they ghost us or shame us or don't like us, what God is saying, what Jesus is saying is don't keep wasting your energy there. There are other people who are receptive. There are other people who are out there that are wanting God's peace or receptive to God's peace and wholeness in their lives. Spend time there. We're not called to beat our heads against the brick walls of a hardened heart. We're not called to do that, Jesus says. And if they reject this, again, it's not about you. Jesus says, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It's, about, it's not about their rejection of you as much as it's a rejection of who you and I follow. And ultimately, there will be accountable to that. Think about that. Our response is our responsibility. Their response is their responsibility. Right? I'm not a, I, I, I'm not, it's not my job, your job to convict people or convert people. That's Holy Spirit work. That's what the Holy Spirit does in a person's life. I'm just responsible for sharing God's peace, God's hope, God's wholeness, the offer, the invitation of the kingdom and the gospel to people. If they don't receive it, that's not my responsibility. That's their responsibility. That's what Jesus is saying. And so there are times where we shake the dust off our feet and we move on, not because we don't care, not because we don't love, but because we're not going to spin our wheels and waste our energy in a place that is not welcome and open and receptive to us. I think this is actually great teaching for us today, especially when we see some more hostility and shame within our culture towards Christian identity. I think this is important for us to, to not feel like we've got to go uh, convert, right, and, and, and change everybody, right, and that we go to the people of peace. I think about that. We offer peace, and we look for peace in return. We offer shalom. We offer hospitality. We look for it in return. It's all for Jesus. It's all about receptivity, about receptivity and going to those places of receptivity. So I've heard a complaint about preachers, and the complaint goes like this. Preachers talk a lot about their spouses and their children in sermons. Have you ever heard that? I don't know if you've been, those of you have been around church a long time. And I'm as guilty as charged, but this is not that time. I thought about that. So why do preachers talk about their spouses and their children in sermons? I thought about this. Well, one reason is those are the people in closest proximity and give the best sermon illustrations. So that's one reason. But the other reason that preachers talk about their families is because they love their families. They, they talk about the people they love. They talk about the spouses they love. They talk about the children because they love those people. And so because they love them, hopefully they'll share good stories about them and not just the bad ones. But they, you see what I'm saying is that we talk about the people we love. We share about the people we love. If someone comes up to you and gets to know you and is in conversation with you, do you talk to them about your spouse? Do you share stories about your kids? Right? Jay Pathak in the, in the book, The Art of Neighboring, says this. 
If you love Jesus, then he will naturally come up in conversations. If you love Jesus, he will naturally come up in conversations. But if your kids or your spouse does something that you're ashamed of, what do you do? Do you hide that from others? Do you hide those things, those parts from others because you're ashamed? I had some Jehovah's Witnesses show up at my door. I don't know if I've told you all this story. If I have, forgive me. I'm getting to the place where old age and longevity is kicking in and I can't remember the stories, you know, that we tell. But uh, JW, Jehovah's Witnesses came to our door one day and I had some time on my hands. I said, why not? (laughs) So I step out on the front porch. It's a summer day and they come, you know, this this, uh, two people come and they want to share with, they hand me a Watchtower magazine and they're trying to share their beliefs and their doctrine with me and their teachings with me. And, and I, I say to them, uh, so finally I said, uh, this, you know, I, I, you know, I'm glad that you guys are here. I'll, can I ask you guys a question? You know, since we're talking about faith, can I share something about my faith with you? And I said, you know what? I just love Jesus. And I have this relationship with Jesus where Jesus walks with me every day and is a part of my life every day and is a part of my family's life. Um, Do you have that? And they didn't know how to answer the question. They were like, wait, this isn't how I was trained. This is not in the teaching manual, right? And I just started to talk to them about having a relationship with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I started to talk about this and that how God loved them and wanted to be in relationship with them. They had no clue what to do about that conversation. Because when I made it about a relationship, when I made it about uh, an experience in my life, it didn't fit into their box, their doctrine, their teaching. So finally, they looked at me and they, excuse me, they said, could we send an elder back to talk with you? (laughs) I said, sure, send him back. Love to have the same discussion. You know, the elder never came. (laughs) I'm really disappointed that nobody ever came back to talk with me, right? Why? Because I wasn't fitting into the box (laughs) and uh, I wasn't, agreeing with all their teaching, right? See what I'm saying? But they didn't want to, we want to be in relationship with people, right? Do we want to share God's love with people, right? Not just about getting them to fit into our box. But the bottom line is this, right? If you're ashamed of Jesus, you're going to hide Jesus from others. If you love Jesus, you're going to talk about Jesus. Pretty simple. Let's pray.